to this week's edition of the Shortwave Listener's Digest here on RCI. Well, to lead off with this week, we're going to continue our conversation with Walter Foster, the manager of submarine cable systems at Teleglobe Canada, one of this country's most important communications companies. On this occasion, we're going to take a closer look at the cables and repeaters themselves. We mentioned earlier that that uh, cable that is used for undersea cable circuits costs anywhere from $25,000 to $35,000 or $40,000 per mile, depending on whether it's the lightweight non-armored cable or the, the heavy-duty stuff that is used closer to shore in shallow water. So what is the physical makeup of, uh, of this cable? It's difficult to do this without writing my hands and drawing pictures, but... Uh, Pick up your average ballpoint pen and look at it. And you are looking at the one and only metal conductor in the heart of the cable. By multiplexing your signals and your channels, you can pump thousands of discrete separate frequencies down that one miserable little wire. Uh, I guess I could uh, analogize this to say, on your average radio dial, you keep turning the dial to find a different station because you're going to a different frequency. Uh, in essence, there's a decigrate radio set in the terminal station capable of pumping out thousands of different frequencies, all different, all separate from each other, all down that one miserable wire, which also contains the power, the thousands of volts of power necessary to energize the repeaters. And the repeater is simply a two or three stage amplifier which boosts the fading signals as they travel down X miles of cable. They arrive at a repeater, it uh, magnifies the, the voice level thousands of times and pumps it on down the cable for another few miles. That's the makeup of the cable. We see the center conductor. It's surrounded by a wall of very high grade polyethylene to a diameter of perhaps an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half. There is a thin skin of either aluminum or copper, depending upon design, around it, the outer conductor. And then finally, a thin skin of lower grade but harder polyethylene, purely for protection of the outer conductor when it's being handled from cable factory to cable ship and into the water. That, that basic cable is your deep water cable. Then if you wrap it around with some very heavy armor wires for protection purposes, you then have the shallow water cable. And in very close inshore areas where you have tidal scour, possibly uh, in the north um, iceberg activity, where then you might want to put a second water wrapping of armor wire around it. Double armored cable, it looks like about four and a half inches in diameter. And I don't advise that you ask for a sample of that because you'd be having great difficulty in carrying it in your briefcase on this well, those armoring wires are actually about a quarter of an inch in diameter and almost looks like a piece of hollow wire rope, wherein the cable itself is uh, is in the middle. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that there's this inner core of steel cable normally. Is this actually used as part of the, uh, the conductor to carry the multiplex signals, or is this purely for carrying the uh, the voltage necessary to run this to run the system no to be precise it is purely the strength member to enable the ship to lower that cable two to three miles down to the seabed 
and not have it voiced by its own weight in suspension. It performs very little function once it's down there, although uh, since the core is basically a bundle of very thin high tensile steel strands surrounded by a thin skin of copper, uh, while the RF signals, the multiplex signals, are carried on the copper. Um, it's probably easier to visualize the power going down the steel and the RF signals going down the copper, but in fact it's a homogeneous mess of conductor. And uh, I think if I was a couple of volts, I'd prefer to go down copper than blow out steel, since their resistivities are somewhat different. The repeaters that are installed every five or six miles throughout the length uh, of a cable, you mentioned uh, earlier that these cost somewhere in the area of $130,000 each. What is there about them that makes them so expensive? Because they, they can't be uh, expensive due to the fact that so few are made because there are hundreds in a given cable and there are lots of cables. Mm-hmm. Um, would you believe the price of gold and silver? Many of the components are, in fact, gold. Um, almost all the soldering is silver soldering. Um, the design of the components calls for an interrupted operational life of 25 to 30 years. A repeater should never have to be recovered because something went wrong inside. The, uh, the quality, if you will, the quality insurance level is such that in our Cantac 2 cable, which is 2,800 miles long, it runs in fact from Beaver Harbor, Nova Scotia, to the UK. It has 470-some repeaters in it, and the guarantee tells us that we can expect one of those repeaters to go sour in the life of the cable. Now, that's quality control. And that's what you're paying for. And I, for one, am very glad indeed that nothing I'm in need of at the moment costs about $140,000 a piece, especially something that small. Next week, in the final part of my conversation with Walter Foster of Teleglobe Canada, we'll be talking about the part that fiber optics and digital technology will be playing in the future of submarine cable communications. We haven't had any DX news from Glenn Hauser over the past few weeks, mainly due to the fact that Glenn's been on holiday, but he's back with us this week with a bumper crop of items to pass along. Glenn? Bernie Bear in Ontario heard LI-36, Antarctica, August 11th from 23.30 until sound off at midnight 34 on 15.473 and three quarters. On the 15 megahertz Macedonian frequencies from D, keep varying. Sometimes they're as close together as 2 kilohertz. And they don't go off at the same time, around 21.15. Joe Hanlon noted one of them recently on 15.055. Some people think it's a clandestine, but it does appear in the World Radio TV Handbook as a Greek regional on 9815. Ralph Lundstrom says several DXs in Norway report Namibia on 3295 instead of 4965, with 3270 carrying vernaculars only. I suspect this is the correct identity for the Kennedy Tristan de Cunha reported on Sweden calling DXers. Bob Hill in California hears Capital Radio Transkai, South Africa, via short pass on 9764 from Sinon 0530 
pass 0700. Parallel to 7149. Again via long pass around 1400. And Bob heard the rare 6020 kilohertz of Radio North Solomon from tune in 0640 to a cutoff at 0655. Parallel to 9520. In DX front line, he saw Ubersaw reports on Vietnam. Bin Tri Chen on 4667 has a one hour transmission at 1300. Bok Tai has been on 6591 variable or varying between 6613 and 6626, between 1125 and 1300 GMT. One of the most stable Vietnamese locals is Cao Ban. Still on 6529 at 1200 to 1400. Charles Boland in Florida heard Rayu Imahen, Peru, on 5035, August 6th at 0945. In World DX Club Contact, Gordon Bennett in England reports it too until closing at 0503. So Rayu Imahen is not extinct as per the Topical Band survey. This Bolivian news from Tony Jones in Paraguay. Radio Extensor is active again on 6184, although for several days it was on 6195 instead. The announced schedule is 1000 to 2200, but the shortwave sign-off comes between 2230 and 2235. Radio Santana, La Voz de Yacoma, on 4887, has a daily broadcast at 2230 to 0200. And they announce a morning transmission from 1200 hours. Our Cotroneo in Pai Italy measured it on 4886.3 at 2325 to 2400. And Tony Jones reports Radio Libertad on 3885, not 3385 as reported elsewhere, believed to be in the Bolivian town of Reyes Benny, signing on between 2300 and 2315, signing off between 0105 and 0135. There is no Sunday transmission. William Mellon in Virginia reports the Ozark Mountain DX Club at Radio Rivadavia, Argentina, was on 15 Rivadavia on 9690. July 29th at 1020 with a special boxing match from Japan. Radio Moscow via Cuba was blocking WWV again on 10 MHz, July 28th, between midnight 40 and 0500. Noted by Robert Mounts in Tennessee and Sean McDaniel in Indiana. The first airing of my DX program, World of Radio, via WRNO New Orleans, will change time from the weekend of September 4th. Instead of Sundays at 2330, I hope more listeners will be able to hear it better at the new time of GMT Sundays at 0230 on 6155. That's Saturday evenings in North America. The Tuesday repeat remains the same around 1900 on 15420. Here's WRNO's full schedule, effective September 5th. Daily from 1800 on 15420, 2100 on 11890, 1400 on 11900, 
Starting in September, the secret Sunday airing of Austrian shortwave panorama at 12.34 GMT moves from 17.880 back up to 13 meters, 21.535. I suppose that will be co-channel South Africa. More DX News in a few minutes. Thank you, Glenn. And Glenn will be back a little later with more DX News for you. Harold Sellers, Anarch DX Equipment Information Committee Chairman and Surveyor of the Equipment Scene, is with us again tonight to finish off his two-part series on timepieces for the F.W. Allen DXer. Harold? Thank you, man. Everyone ready? Your tape recorder or pen and paper, because there are more addresses to follow as we conclude our two-part look at clock for the shortwave listener. We'll start off by mentioning another conventional round wall clock, the Cantronics Electric 1224-hour clock. Made by Cantronics, 1202 East 23rd Street, Lawrence, Kansas, 66044. It sells for about 35 U.S. dollars from Cantronics and their distributors. Ham radio equipment manufacturers, of course, also manufacture clocks for UTC and GMT. Kenwood's representative is a model HC10 digital world time clock, and it is the most complex clock I will discuss in this series. Featuring two fluorescent tube displays, it can show both local and UTC times. Plus, it can memorize the present time and then an end time at the conclusion of a broadcast as such. Begin and end times are displayed on the separate displays. There is also a memory feature where you can store up to 10 different time zones, allowing you the push of a button to find the time in any one of 10 areas of the world. The HC10 costs 100 US dollars and you can purchase it from any hand or SWL supplier who carries Kenwood equipment. Or you can write to Kenwood at 1111 West Walnut, Compton, California, 90220 for the name of the dealer nearest you. Yesu, another big name in ham radio, has a clock similar to the Copal and Howard Miller timepieces mentioned last month. That is, it has a round face with hour and minute hands over 12 and 24 hour scales, plus markings for major world cities. It is battery operated and mounted on a desk stand. It sells for $50 from many companies supplying Yesu equipment. MFJ Enterprises, PO Box 494, Mississippi State, Mississippi, 39762, has a small rectangular desk clock operated by AC Power. The MFJ-102 may be switched between 12 or 24-hour formats, and it displays hours, minutes, and seconds on blue LEDs. It is priced at $33. In addition to the clocks I've mentioned, there are, of course, many wristwatches that include selectable 24-hour formats. And a look in almost any, any electronics hobbyist magazine will reveal some inexpensive kits for 24-hour clocks, which are quite easy to build. The timepieces I have mentioned, however, are those best suited to and most popular with show listeners and DXers. Should you wish to purchase a receiver with a built-in clock, this is also possible. 12-hour clocks are built into the Kenwood R1000, Panasonic R6300, and Yaesu FRG7700. While 24-hour displays are part of the Greenwich Satellite 300, 600, and 3400, as well as the Panasonic RF9000. If you would like a copy of this two-part survey, send a stamped return envelope to ANARC, A-N-A-R-C, Three Cameras Crescent, Scarborough, Ontario. That's ANARC, Three Cameras, C-A-M-R-O-S-E, Crescent, Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. 
N1L2B5. I'll be back in September with more equipment news. This is Harold Kelly for the Association of North American Radio Club. Well, oh, thank you very much for that interesting two-part series, Harold. Now, to wind things up for this week, we're going to get Glenn Hauser back in here with a bit of a bonus DX News report for you. I'm Jack Nelson, DX Club reporter Pete Spaziano in New Jersey, says Radio Prague, Czechoslovakia, has two new frequencies for Eastern North America at 0100 and 0300, 11970 and 9630. And Radio Portugal's latest 49-meter frequency in English at 0530 is 6075. Bob Padula in Australia reports UAE Radio Dubai on 15300 instead of 15320 in English at 0330. Radio Veritas Philippines in English at midnight 30 on 17815 instead of 17705. And from China, PBS Ganan region, Gansu province, on Neil Fried 960 opening at 2257. Duncan Fields reports from Ming also on 5960 from 2228. And Bradley in Newfoundland heard Iran July 26 at English at 
and 0317 to 0347 on 7430. And catching up on some DX news you may have missed during our break, Radio Tatsura, Venezuela, reactivated 4830, heard by Charles Bowen in Florida July 22nd at 0927 to 1030, and by Steve Einstein in Florida the same day at midnight 33, past 0100. First, WL Digest, this is Glenn Hauser. And with that extra batch of DX news, we have to put the wraps on the proceedings for another week and quietly steal off into the ether once again. Joining us next week, by the way, will be our equipment testing expert, Larry Magny. Till then, this is Ian McFarland wishing you all the very best of luck. Good listening and cheerio for now.
were regional conferences dealing with medium frequency or medium wave broadcasting in ITU Region 2, which is the Americas. And the conferences were held in those cases in Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro. There was also a conference in Stockholm in 1961, but all the rest were held in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, as for the reason why all these conferences uh, have been held in Geneva, well, I would hazard an educated guess on that, that it's simply because it's a great deal simply to hold the conferences where the ITU headquarters is located and where all the ITU records are kept, as well as uh, where the, uh, the ITU secretariat is located. Everything would no doubt be much more efficient this way. That, as I said, is my educated guess, but just to make good and sure I wasn't leading anyone down the garden path on this, I checked it out with the proper authorities at the Department of Communications in Ottawa and found that my educated guess was pretty well right on. There is, in fact, an ITU convention which decrees that all world administrative radio conferences will, in the interest of efficiency, be held in Geneva, where the ITU secretariat is based. However, the ITU is at the same time open to offers from any member administration of the ITU to host one of these ITU conferences. The only snag here is that the administration doing the hosting must foot the bill for the difference in the cost between holding the conference in Geneva and holding it elsewhere. And this bill can run anywhere from half a million dollars to just under two million dollars. In view of the fact that uh, very few administrations have that kind of money to throw around these days, it's easy to see why the vast majority of the ITU conferences are held in Geneva. So, there you have it, Alvin, and many thanks for writing. We have some very interesting comments recently from Michael Schulfinger in Springfield, Ohio, concerning Glenn Hauser's two-part series on harmonics, which we featured uh, back at the beginning of August. Here's what Michael had to say. Most of what Glenn Hauser said, I agree with completely. Harmonic DXing is a very valid section of the hobby and should be treated with the same respect as any other logging. Harmonics should be published in shares. But I must part with Mr. Hauser on the question of QSLs from harmonic frequencies. In the broadcast, he stated that he felt that stations shouldn't be contacted concerning harmonics because they might be obliged to eliminate the source of the emissions. QSLs serve two purposes. First and foremost, they provide broadcasters with feedback concerning the content and technical quality of transmission. Second, they provide the shortwave listener with an enjoyable hobby within a hobby. The harmonics Mr. Hauser discussed are generally caused by improper maintenance or alignment of the broadcaster's equipment. And I feel that shortwave listeners have a responsibility to notify the sources of such harmonics. It's not fair to the broadcaster to tell him that his signal on 6 megahertz is weak without bothering to mention that X percent of his power is being lost in the form of harmonics. When you boil it all down, harmonics are a form of electromagnetic pollution. And the one thing that the shortwave spectrum doesn't need more of is electromagnetic pollution. If we do, we can always ask the Russians for more choppers. So, don't be afraid to report harmonic stations. You're doing the station a favor, and might just have that favor rewarded with a special QSL card or two. Well, many thanks indeed, Michael, for a most interesting comment there. This is the sort of thing that we'd like to get more of in response to the things that we do feature here on the Shortwave Listener's Digest. And I would hasten to add that I wholeheartedly agree with your comments with regard to electromagnetic pollution. 
No matter how valid an aspect of the radio hobby it might happen to be, harmonics aren't supposed to be there, just like jammers and choppers aren't supposed to be there. And the only difference between the two, as far as pollution goes, is that the jammer usually covers a much wider bandwidth than does a harmonic. And speaking for RCI, and I can assure you that we're always very pleased indeed to find out if one of our transmitters is or has been exploding harmonics. Thanks again for your very interesting letter, Michael. For the next little while here on the Shortwave Missionary Digest, we're going to take you back to the 1982 Anarch Convention from six weeks ago here in Montreal. As you're all aware, our coverage of the convention was a joint effort with Bob Zanotti of the Swiss Shortwave Merry-Go-Round program on SRI. As you can imagine, there was a great deal of material to cover. Even on two programs, there wasn't really enough time to do it justice. Consequently, a fair amount had to be left out completely, while other material had to be edited out of both programs to get them down to the proper length for broadcast. Bob and I had some questions for David Meisel, who gave a most interesting seminar on something he's most expert at, activity and propagation. Those questions got edited out. So I'd like to let you hear them right now. Something which has always interested me, and we've had letters about this on the two short wave merry-go-round, and that is how high can the MUF or the maximum usable frequency be pushed by um, a great deal of solar activity? And what is the maximum frequency that will propagate? Well, the, the, the nice thing about the cycle is the fact that this does saturate. That is, uh, as the activity keeps climbing and gets higher and higher, the, the MUF does not climb out of existence. It seems the atmosphere just simply can't hold any more electrical particles than a certain amount. So right now, for example, the, the, uh, uh, the amount of activity that we see, even if it declines by another 30 to 50 percent, you will not see that big a change in most of the propagation. Uh, however, another 50 percent decline in solar activity would be devastating. So it, it, it's, it's at very high sunspot number, uh, the changes in solar activity do not affect, except for the geomagnetic storms, do not affect the propagation that much. It's when you have this crazy seesaw battle, and you're up and you're down and you're up and down. Uh, also, the question about what's the highest possible frequency depends on geographic area. In Europe and Africa, uh, 50 to 75 megahertz transit patrol is, is a very normal thing throughout much of the highest part of the sunspot cycle. Here in North America, we have this incredible well where there's hardly any uh, ionization at all. Uh, here, uh, it seems that, that to see 30 megahertz on normal transequatorial for the United States is very unusual. There have been reports occasionally of well, up to 175, 200 megahertz. But is this really the upper limit, would you say, globally? Well, I think this is scattering. This is not real, the real reliable reflection. This tends to be, there, there were TV signals going, going in and out uh, of Europe and in the U.S. and television. Um, I think that's, that's abnormal. It's quite abnormal. Well, getting back to the old uh, inexact science of propagation predictions, uh, a couple of years back, they predicted that 11 meters would be dead as the old proverbial dodo bird, but it's certainly been anything but dead in the last two years. How much longer can we expect uh, 11 meters to last with any usable uh, reliability? 
Well, some part of the fact that the activity is at least running level right now to where it was earlier last winter. Uh, I will say that, that it might get us through at least to win next northern hemisphere winter season. Uh, beyond that point, the thing may drop very precipitously and then you'll be out of business because you have to come to a summer and then catch up a winter. But I'd say try one more winter perhaps. Um, but again, the geomagnetic service number is going to go up significantly. So that it isn't a matter of muff anymore, it's a matter of not wiggling around with the ionosphere motion. So using old proverbs, uh, only time will tell. It certainly will. Well, as you may recall hearing, uh, as part of the uh, NR coverage that didn't get edited on this program, David Weisel mentioned that uh, it looks like this particular sunspot cycle is going to have a double peak, a very unusual cycle indeed. Another of the successful seminars at the NR convention concerns something called the New World Information Order. Some of you may, in fact, be aware of what this is, and you may also be rather confused about the whole thing. Well, in a word, what the New World Information Order is all about is news, and more precisely, the worldwide coverage and dissemination of news. For a great many of the world shortwave listeners, one of the prime motivations for listening to shortwave in the first place is an interest in hearing news broadcasts from many different countries. And being able to do just that via the shortwave band, the shortwave listener is able to get a great many different viewpoints on the news than is the person who gets all of his or her news via a local radio or television station. That title, the New World Information Order, with its rather Orwellian sound, is something that has the Western news media very upset and extremely defensive as well. To supply some interesting background to just what they're being defensive about, here's media analyst Barry Zwicker. Millions of events take place in the world every day. Just a few of these are reported as news. The most important single factor in deciding which few will become news is the giant edge in resources that the Western news media have. The big four news agencies especially set the world's news agenda by distributing their version of reality to the world's 48,000 news media offices. The British agency Reuters puts out a million and a half words a day in six languages and Agence France twice that many words. Then you get into the really big league. The American agency, United Press International, dispatches 14 million words daily, while the fourth member of the big four, Associated Press, has 600 staff abroad and 9,500 clients. AP reaches an estimated one-third of the Earth's population with its 17 million words a day. The dollar budget of the big four for one day exceeds the annual communications budget of many small countries. And two-thirds of all the world's news copy originates in the United States. In 1977, UNESCO appointed a 16-country commission to study this situation. Western media slashed at the commission every move it made. I have hundreds of clippings in my files to prove this. A typical headline in the Ottawa Citizen read, Thought Control, Goal of UNESCO Conference. The commission's moderate report, titled Many Voices, One World, came out about a year ago. The CTV program W5 called that report a weapon against the West. Betty Zimmerman, Canada's representative on the commission, has been calling for a cooling of inflated rhetoric on both sides and for getting down to practical steps to build bridges of understanding. Well, in Acapulco, the first small but practical steps were taken toward a new world information order. 
UNESCO approved a razor-thin budget of $910,000 to assist struggling third world news agencies. But this meeting, unlike all the previous ones, was either blacked out or buried by the Western media. I checked seven papers, for instance. I found no story had been buried by the Ottawa Citizen, Vancouver Province, Toronto Globe and Mail, or Toronto Star. The Star, mind you, ran an editorial attacking the meeting it hadn't reported, which must have left some readers puzzled. The Vancouver Sun reprinted a negative editorial from The Economist of London, England. The librarian at the Halifax Chronicle Herald and Mail Star told me that her papers ran only two or three paragraphs of wire copies. The only absence in coverage at the local meeting that I'm aware of is on CBC's radio program Sunday Morning. Sunday Morning's correspondent reported that ideology was played down during the discussion. And UPI's internal newsletter agreed. The Acapulco meeting showed UNESCO would not become a thought control agency. The meeting, in other words, just didn't work out to fit Western media criticism. And so hundreds of editors had to define it as not being newsworthy. And that's why you probably didn't get to hear or read about it.
Mission WRNO Worldwide plans to use 
But as far as this week goes, I'm afraid you've had your luck. Oh, at the same time, then, this is Ian McFarland wishing you all the very best of luck. Good listening, and cheerio for now. You've been listening.